Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue podcast. I'm recording this episode on the second day of February. I cannot believe we are already through the first month of 2022. You know, growing up, my dad used to always say that time travels faster the older you get. I would always say, oh my gosh, my birthday feels like it's so far away. Or, oh my gosh, Christmas feels like it's so far away. And he would always say, enjoy it while it lasts because it only moves faster. And I'm starting to experience that. I'm not sure if you guys have felt the same thing too, but time just feels like it's moving increasingly more quickly. And again, a month is about, give or take, 8 or 9% of a year. So here we are, 8% of the way through the year. Always a good reminder here on these episodes that come out in early February to just for all of you who set resolutions, who set New Year's goals, who have ambitious targets that might be on a calendar, particularly spread out over the course of a year, if you fell behind in the first month, don't panic. Still plenty of time to get started. Still plenty of time to reach for those goals and hopefully achieve them. Today's episode is going to be a fun one. We're going to get into some of your guys' questions. I have a ton of them fielded here from Instagram, probably at least 20. We'll go rapid fire. We'll talk a little bit about Bulgarian split squats. We'll talk quite a bit about protein powder consumption. There's a few questions on that. Uh, how often you should train your core or abs if you want them to be stronger, which I think is always something that I get quite a bit of a question about. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how you might train for something congruently, meaning like martial arts and weightlifting. We'll talk a little bit about macro splits, how one might calculate macros, L-theanine, lots of good questions in here. But before we get into the Q&A, two primary sections of the episode today, we're going to talk about fitness guidelines set forth by the government here in the United States, particularly some from the CDC, a little interesting experiment. And again, I know the CDC and the United States government are particularly triggering for people, especially in this hyper-polarized, politicized landscape, very, very challenging uh, post-pandemic, entering towards the end of the pandemic window here, very divided. So if you just had enough of COVID, you don't want to talk anymore about COVID, this is not that discussion. You don't have to worry. We're just going to talk a little bit about this. And, and I, I did a little interesting experiment, a poll on my Instagram. Then I'm going to dive into some of the finer details of my current training. I'm going to share my current training split with you guys. Talk a little bit about an exciting new product coming your way towards the beginning of April that I cannot wait to share with you. And then we'll get into the Q&A. So uh, first and foremost, I, I guess I'd like to let you guys in on this exciting thing that's coming. I am working on some programming that will be app-based that you can take with you to the gym and another app-based program that you can do from home with just dumbbells and bands. So the primary rollout of these programs, one of which is going to be an extension of my very popular female physique ebooks that are still available on the Core Coaching Method website. Those are female-specific bodybuilding programs. I'm going to be launching an app-based program called Elite Physique that will allow you to take programming to the gym with exercise tutorials, sets, reps. There will be a community component with lots of discussion between you and the other members of this team. You'll be able to directly communicate with myself, Coach Matt and Coach Sylvia, all the members of the Core Coaching Method team. You'll be able to track PRs, share PRs, have that community. It's certainly not a replacement for our coaching services. You will not get the same one-on-one -on -one attention. You will not get a fully customized program. It will not be built to your constraints, etc. But if you're looking to optimize your experience in the gym, you're already going a few days a week, 
This is going to be an amazing offering for you. So stay tuned as I talk more about that in the coming weeks and months. Additionally, I'm also going to be bringing to you a very similar program that can be done from home. Again, it's going to be focused primarily primarily on what I would describe as muscular development. It will be a great program for both men and women looking to maintain body composition or improve body composition from home, working with minimal space and minimal equipment. That program will use just dumbbells and bands. It will focus mostly on compound movements, movement progressions, mobility, core training. So those two programs will launch at the beginning of April. I've partnered with Train Heroic to make sure that the technology and the app is phenomenal. It's not glitchy and it's effective. That is something that was really, really important to me. I'm very excited to bring these to you again, a substantially more fleshing out to do. Um, but I wanted to put that on your radar because many of you have been asking about this for quite some time. So I'm pretty excited to bring that to you. Okay, so let's talk about the government fitness guidelines or more specifically the fitness and nutrition guidelines set forth by the CDC. So I asked on my Instagram poll um, what the general consensus was amongst my following. I kept this poll up for about two hours. Um, I didn't need to keep it up much longer than that to gather a ton of data. And I, I figured that it opened the door for political discourse on that platform, which I try to avoid. It's not that I'm apolitical. It's not that I don't have political opinions. And it's certainly not that I'm afraid to communicate my political opinions. I've just tried as best I can to keep that stuff off of my Instagram. I get a little bit too into the weeds on Twitter, which is my own mistake, but I don't want people's feeds, particularly on Facebook-specific platforms like Facebook or Instagram, to have any more politics. And while these aren't particularly political, unfortunately, whenever you bring up the CDC, it can get political. And I got a couple of DMs almost immediately from people that were clearly agitated, and I just didn't want to have, I didn't have the time for that. So here were the questions that I asked. Here were the answers. Here's what I thought was fascinating. So the first thing I posted was an image from the CDC's website. This is their exercise guidelines. Very clearly, uh, very easy to access if you're curious. You can look up CDC exercise guidelines. And they have a very large infographic at the top of the page that says move more and sit less. Adults should move more and sit less throughout the day. Physical activity, some physical activity is better than none. Adults who sit less and do any amount of moderate to vigorous intense activity will gain health benefits. How much do I need? Well, they recommend 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity aerobic activity anything that gets your heart beating faster counts, and at least two days a week of muscle strengthening activities, which are activities that make your muscles work harder than normal. They have a picture of a guy lifting weights and a picture of a, a, a guy, a stick figure doing pushups. Um, and so I asked, do you think that this is generally good exercise advice? And 98% of you said yes. I then asked uh, what you thought of the nutritional guidelines, the most uh, prominent infographic on the site said that a good diet emphasizes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, fat-free milk, low-fat milk, and milk products, includes a large variety of proteins such as seafood, lean meats, poultry, eggs, legumes, beans, peas, soy products, nuts, and seeds, is low in saturated fats, trans fats, cholesterol, salt, sodium, and added sugars, and stays within your calorie needs. 97% of you guys said that this was generally good nutritional advice. I then asked, and this was funny to me, do you think that the government is capable 
capable of providing generally good exercise and nutritional guidelines? I asked this question last and 67% of you said no. So it was funny to me that on average, 97% of you guys between 98 and 90, so 97.5% of you guys said you liked the CDC's guidelines for exercise. 97%, 97.5% if you split the difference said you liked the CDC's nutritional guidelines. But 67% of you said that the government was incapable of providing these things. And I'm not saying that the government is good or bad. I'm not saying that there haven't been inefficiencies. I'm not saying that the CDC has done a good job of messaging on COVID. I'm just saying that it's very clear and very apparent to me that we've become very, very disillusioned with whether or not we can trust our doctors, whether or not we can trust uh, the government with our health. And I absolutely, absolutely believe that the first and most important person or entity when it comes to your health is you. And you've got to accept responsibility more than probably your doctor and certainly more than the government, right? But we've also become increasingly calloused about the government's interest in our health, particularly those in the fitness space. I see a lot of people who say things like, if the government really cared about your health, they wouldn't talk about getting the vaccine. They just tell you to move more and eat healthier, as if it were that simple to combat the obesity epidemic. I see a lot of this coming from personal trainers, which is deeply frustrating to me because it's like, bro, you do understand that if in fact people listened to the government, which they don't, and most of the people who make these comments particularly have a disdain for the government, um, if they were to just say, everybody needs to move more and eat less, and that magically moved the 300 million plus Americans to move more and eat less and killed the obesity epidemic, that every personal trainer would be out of a fucking job for the most part. I mean, not every single one, but quite a few of them would be out of a job. It's not that simple. And I do think that it takes, like I said, nothing more than a Google to find the fact that the CDC, for all of the messaging errors in COVID, for all of the frustrations around the mandates and the lockdowns, and I'll be the first to tell you, I am pro-vaccine and anti-mandate. And I think that that is a very reasonable place to be in February 2nd of 2022 with everything that's going on. And I'm not saying that you should be any more, any less frustrated with how COVID went, but it takes one Google to find that the guidelines are generally sound. And while the messaging of people uh, in politics could absolutely be better, and we could absolutely amplify uh, politicians who want to discuss things like, you know, healthier lifestyle changes and how we could encourage that at the population level. It definitely seems like people are disillusioned with the institutions. Uh, our society's institutions and their ability to encourage us to live healthier, even if they give generally sound advice, if you went to per se, let's just go look for it. So I did find that disparity to be quite fascinating. The last piece of that question I asked people, do you think this advice came from California State University Health Services, Kaiser Permanente, my website, or the CDC? And more people selected my website than they did the CDC uh, with the California uh, Health, California University Health Services, which is something I completely made up, coming in third, and um, Kaiser Permanente coming last. So uh, to me, that's also quite funny because another thing that another institution that people are rightfully displeased with oftentimes are, are for-profit insurance companies where we pay so much money every month in health insurance. Uh, and oftentimes our health is only really Uh, treated or cared for if there's an absolute emergency, which isn't to say don't have health insurance. You absolutely need it, Uh, especially if you live in a state like California where they find the shit out of you for not having it. But it is something that to me is quite fascinating 
uh, how quickly we become disillusioned in many ways for good reasons and in some ways perhaps for political reasons. So anyway, moving on from that, I thought that was an interesting thought experiment worth sharing. I want to talk a little bit about my current training split. So I'm currently following a push-pull leg split, but it's not a seven-day split um, because my schedule is a little hectic. On average, I can train five out of every seven days. I can train for about an hour and a half to two hours on the weekend. I generally take my time and I'll film a few pieces of content while I'm in my garage gym, which I absolutely love. Uh, I do quite a bit on the weekends, whether it's, you know, working on my fish tanks, working with getting my clients their check-ins, because that's something that I do on the weekends. I spend time with my lovely girlfriend on the weekends. I take the dog out on the weekends, you know. That's also my decompression time. And then during the week, I have a lot of things that I'm doing with the podcast, clients that I'm communicating with across the week via email. I still see one-on-one clients in person for at least 35 sessions a week. So that's a 40, that's basically a 40 hour a week job, just seeing clients Monday through Friday, in addition to operating the podcast, in addition to operating the business in the, my online business core coaching method, in addition to having the dog, in addition to having a girlfriend, all these things take time. Um, so during the week, I'm only able to probably get three 60 to 90 minute workouts in. I take usually Mondays and Fridays off and I train Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. And so what I will tend to do is legs on that first session of the week, followed by a push day and a pull day. Then there's a day off. Then when I get to the weekends, I always reserve one weekend day for legs. That way I can have a nice hour and a half, two hour leg day. And then that last day is either a push day, a pull day, or a total upper body day before I rest again on Monday and repeat. Uh, With that Monday would, if I did, uh, so for example, if I did legs on Saturday, upper body on Sunday, Monday would be legs again. If I did push on Sunday, Monday would be pull. I would do pull on, on Sunday, then push on Monday. Then Tuesday would be the leg day. So it's a little bit more dynamic. It's a little bit more fluid. It works really well for my schedule, especially if I have to miss a day. So uh, why I like this is if, for example, I can only train four days that week and I see it coming, I know I'll have an upper and a lower session on the weekends, which will be very effective. But then when I get to the Monday through Friday, all I'm looking to do is consolidate those push-pull days into one session. And then I'm only looking to find an hour or so to train two days a week, Monday through Friday, which I can absolutely do. And if I want, I can wake up early at four o'clock in the morning and make sure that I get that done before I see sessions. Uh, That's never been a problem for me, but that's my current split. As for the exercises that I'm focusing on, I figured I'd go by body part. I'm currently focusing on developing the back squat and the Bulgarian split squat. Those are the two big quad movements I'm doing. I'm focusing quite a bit on Romanian deadlifts and Nordic ham curls. Those are the two posterior chain movements that I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing a lot of calf raises, particularly prior to my heavy leg training, so I can make sure that my calves are getting attention and I'm not neglecting them. I'm spending a lot of time focusing on my arms and incorporating intensity techniques like blood flow restriction training. For chest, I'm doing a lot of cable flies and dips as my primary movements. I'm doing a lot of behind-the-back lateral raises, dumbbell upright rows, cable lateral raises, face pulls, front raises, and overhead presses to help develop my delts. 
squats. And for the back, I'm doing a lot of chest-supported lat pull rows, uh, the N1-style chest-supported row. I'm doing a lot of rhomboid and upper back work. Those are the big areas of focus. And those are the things that are getting sprinkled in across my week and progressed. And I've really enjoyed those. And I've found that in seeing such good results with some of these movements, they're actually showing up quite a bit in the programming I'm doing for my online clients as well as the clients that I'm doing in person. So my constant pursuit and and exploration in this bleeds into what I do with clients. and, And I think that's really fun and it keeps it fresh. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And if you're finding value, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media. Simply screenshot whatever platform you're listening to and share the episode to your Instagram story or share it to Facebook. But be sure to tag me so I can say thanks and we can chat it up about what you liked and how I can continue to improve. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and enjoy the rest of the episode. So getting into your guys' questions. This first question comes from Joey G555. He asks, three weeks at a slight deficit and one week at maintenance a month. Is that a good plan for recomp or should I just be at maintenance? So from a definition standpoint, recomp is a body compositional change that's basically occurring at maintenance. So if, if we're talking about achieving true definitive recomp, you wouldn't be in a deficit three days a week. If we're talking about changing the composition of your body and we're using recomp as an umbrella term, I think that three weeks consecutively in a slight deficit followed by one week a month at maintenance where we're maybe trying perhaps a little bit too cautiously to uh, catch any metabolic adaptation before it occurs, I think that would be fine. Particularly if you're a conservative dieter, you're not operating on a time crunch. I think that that can be really, really helpful. And I think that that might be a good approach. It's definitely something that I'd recommend. And I think for people who are willing to diet more slowly, taking a week at maintenance or even a couple days at maintenance, a lot of people will call that a refeed. That can be really valuable. All right, next question, another diet question. This one comes from Neam hs.fit macros please more carbs or fats what comes next after protein so when i'm constructing macronutrient uh programs for my clients or macronutrition programs for my clients i always start with protein uh for the largest majority of the clients that we work with we're probably working and operating within a range of 0.7 to 1 grams of protein per pound of body weight There are some exceptions. So for individuals that we work with who are larger or have more body fat, you can't necessarily do a gram per pound. So I'll give you an example. If a client comes to me and they're 300 pounds, I'm not going to give them a one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Not because I think 300 grams of protein is particularly bad for your health. I do think it's excessive. And I think in the long term, that could be harmful. Um, I just think that 300 grams of protein is massively and wildly impractical. So how you get around that is you might work off of either goal weight, which tends to be a little bit more subjective, and I don't particularly like lean body mass, uh, which tends to be a little bit better. Um, Now, on the flip side, if I get an individual who comes to me and they're operating on a really constrained energy model or they just have a hard time getting in a lot of protein because of the dietary constraints of either not being able to have that many calories or not being able to eat a lot of animal protein because let's say they're vegan and to get a high amount of protein would mean incurring a substantial amount of additional carbs and fats. This tends to be the case for a lot of the plant-based proteins. You can't necessarily get a lot of protein in isolation unless you're really loading up on things like tempeh, 
uh, plant protein powders, soy, etc., which I think for many plant-based eaters becomes redundant. Um, I would also skew a little bit more towards that 0.7 end of the threshold. But for clients who come to us who want to either build muscle or lose body fat, I find that that 0.7 to 1 range is really, really valuable. After I've established protein, I look at body fat, or I'm sorry, <laughs> not body fat, dietary fat. I guess I look at body fat percentage in the intake form, but I look at dietary fat because when we talk about nutrients being essential, protein is essential, fat is essential, carbohydrates are not essential, meaning you can live without them, but theoretically, if you're training hard and you want to develop your physique and you want your diet to be sustainable, I think all three are essential. It's just in what amounts, but the problems that will arise from going low carb for a couple days compared to going low protein or low fat tend to be a little bit less impactful. So if you go low carb for a few days, you don't get enough carbs, you might be lightheaded, you might be irritable, you might have some blood sugar dysregulation. If you are too low on protein or too low on fat, the ramifications or or let's call them the um, the side effects are worse. Uh, fats are essential, particularly for hormone formation, for the integrity of our cell membranes, for our brain health, and going too low on your fat, particularly for women, can cause... I've found this to be very true of women who generally tend to diet on low fat. Uh, They will lose their menstrual cycle quite quickly in some cases, not all cases. And I can tell you of at least three to five women that I've worked with that have come to me on what I would describe as decent macros. They're not completely starved. Like if a girl comes to me on 12 to 1400 calories and she's not really, really, really tiny. And she tells me, um, yeah, I don't have a period. It never surprises me, but every once in a while I'll get a, a female client who comes to me on 1800 to 2000 calories, which seems to generally be enough for a woman to maintain her menstrual cycle, but she doesn't have one. And I look at the macro breakdown and she's eating 30 to 40 grams of fat. And I immediately want to raise that up into a range that's a little closer to what I would describe as essential. And you can do about uh, body weight times 0.3. I tend to find that that that's a little bit of a higher end of the range, but that tends to work well. Um, these women oftentimes will get their menstrual cycle back very quickly when you bring the fats back in because it can help that way. I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert. Don't listen to anything I have to say about this stuff, please. But that's something that I have found works really well. So I establish protein. I establish fat, which if we're dieting, I tend to keep on the lower end because of the caloric impact of fat, nine calories per gram. Remember, but I never go too low because I don't want to jeopardize the health of cells, the brain, the reproductive system, our ability to produce sex hormones, etc. So that stuff to me is really, really important. Okay, next question comes from Sonia Marine. She asks, what are your thoughts on reverse dieting? When would it be appropriate or needed? I think that reverse dieting is a good uh, way to reintroduce calories for individuals who've been dieting for a long time, working on a constrained energy model who maybe are dealing with some, um, let's call it disordered eating, and they're really apprehensive about adding calories back. If you're not dealing with things like a lost period, you're not dealing with things like poor sleep, getting cold, if you're running labs and you see that your thyroid is healthy, if you're not running labs and you don't know where your thyroid's at, your testosterone's at, your estrogen's at, and you're competing or you're getting super lean, you might be doing yourself a disservice. And I've actually partnered with Merrick Health, who does all my labs, to bring you guys discounted high-quality labs that give you the opportunity to get a full panel done, your metabolic panel, your cholesterol panel, your sex hormone panel, 
a bunch of different things that you'd want to know about with regards to like transport proteins, all of your minerals, all your vitamins, different blood stuff, different immune stuff. Uh, with a discount, you'll get to actually sit down with a patient care coordinator to go over all the numbers and a physician to see if you're potentially, you know, a candidate for a pharmaceutical intervention, a supplemental intervention, and they always recommend supplemental and lifestyle interventions ahead of pharmaceutical intervention. So a lot of you guys were going crazy asking me questions about labs. And so I have reached out to a lab servicer that I really respect, but one that will also guide you through it because I know that not everybody is data literate. Not everybody is scientifically literate. Not everybody has um, the ability to just decipher where their hormones should or shouldn't be based on a printout. So I will be soft launching that partnership, I guess, here, but I'll be telling you guys more about it. Uh, That was something that I really wanted to bring on for our clients at Core Coaching Method because I think that there are oftentimes situations where I need that kind of insight and I need to have a partner I can trust. But for those of you who have been asking, um, that partnership will be going live soon and you can get all of the labs you want, the full comprehensive plan for men, the full comprehensive plan for women, plus a discount. And again, the opportunity to have a patient care coordinator guide you through everything so that you can make sure you're in the optimal range and even the physician add-on for really cheap so you can talk to a doctor. And if you do need a pharmaceutical intervention, they can easily write you a prescription for that. But anyway, back to the question. Uh, For those of you who are looking to reverse diet, Uh, I do think that hormonally you need to be in a good spot. If you're wrecked and your thyroid is wrecked and you're cold all the time and your mood is shitty and you don't have a libido, I think adding calories in slowly in the name of maybe managing your body composition a little bit better is short-sighted and a little bit foolish. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that. Um, if you could avoid it. Next question is Kelsey Beth. Knee pain when squatting, even at a low weight, what should I do first to try to help? I can't assess knee pain over a podcast and I'm not really qualified to give you any specific treatment advice. But what I can tell you is that squats aren't for everybody. And you might try another form of squatting, see if that's a little bit more agreeable on the knees. And you can also try training the posterior chain in advance of training the, the squat. John Meadows, may he rest in peace, the great John Meadows Mountain Dog, one, a true OG in the fitness space, somebody I've looked up to for a long time, was a big fan of doing lying hamstring curls before squats. He said it made his knees feel better. I completely concur. It's something I've done for many, many years, and I absolutely love it. Okay, this question comes from Michelle LeBlue. She says, when doing the Bulgarian split squat, how high should my back foot be? Former client of mine, Michelle. I hope you're doing well, Michelle. I always love seeing former clients of mine who reach their goals uh, interacting and engaging with us. Like it's, it's so cool to see people staying engaged with it years and years and years after or months and months and months after. Uh, but the Bulgarian split squat is what we're really talking about here is elevating the rear foot. So how high should the back foot be? And if you put it too high up that it starts to actually move your hip back into extension, you're going to feel a ton of strain in the hip flexor on the trail leg. And I don't necessarily love that. I think that the height of the average bench at a gym is probably going to be okay. Uh, I think any higher than that, and you're probably going to run into trouble. Something that you can do that tends to work really well is you can use the Smith machine to set the bar up, I would say, about the same height as the knee. Um, and then once you've set the bar up there, you can use a bar pad, something that you might use for squatting. 
or wrap a towel around it and use that to elevate the trail leg. They also make some great split squat stands that I think are awesome that generally are adjustable. But for most people, the height is going to be somewhere between the top of the calf and the bottom of the hamstring or right there on the knee joint. Okay, so this question says, new to protein powder consumption, using it as a meal or fuel before workout. This one's from Judy with six E's. And so... I love protein powder. I think it's awesome. And I think that having some before your workout is probably a great idea if you're looking to, you know, increase your total protein across the day and and getting some fuel in before or protein in before you train is, is helpful for you. But it's not training fuel. You see, when we resistance train or even when we do cardio, we're going to be predominantly using carbs as our fuel source or lipids as our fuel source. Protein isn't really a fuel. It's more of something that we use for tissue repair and tissue integrity. So getting it in before your workout will help a lot with your recovery, but not so much with fuel. The best fuel sources you have are things like water, electrolytes, and of course, carbohydrates. Electrolytes really help with muscle contractility. Hydration, of course, is important. And carbohydrates are the fuel that makes the whole thing go. So if you're looking for a pre-workout fuel source, I would do a carbohydrate with uh, two different forms. So something that's glucose dominant and fructose dominant. So like cereal with fruit, and then you can pair that with a protein product, whether that be a whole foods form of protein or a shake. My favorite protein shake is Legion's Whey Plus. Legion makes the creatine, vitamin, fish oil, greens powder, and protein I take. I absolutely love their products. You can swipe down in the show notes and shop at legion.com, checking out using the promo code Danny to save 20% and earn two times points that can be used the same as cash. They make awesome stuff, and I totally recommend their products. Um, So this question comes from Elma Custo, and she asks, if you want strong abs, how often should you train them? And I would say about as often as you train anything else that you'd want to be strong for natural lifters, we're usually looking for a frequency of somewhere between two to three days a week. And I would say that that stands true here. Abs tend to be something you can train a little bit more frequently based on the fact that there's a lot of different muscles that do a lot of different functions. So you could get away with training them every day, but you know, you've got flexion, anti-extension, rotation, anti-rotation, lateral flexion, anti-lateral flexion, um, you know, throwing, which is kind of total body, but incorporates a lot of abs, things like swinging, things like sprinting that are more dynamic, um, medicine ball work that it's like multi-planar, like med ball slams, med ball throws. There's so many different functions of the core that if you want to get creative, you could probably space it out daily. All right. This question comes from Jay Figgy Newton. He says, I've started training martial arts and lifting. Is it okay to work out every day, even when I'm sore? So because you've just started martial arts, I'm imagining you're going to be sore for a while because anytime you start something new physically and you start to recruit muscles in ways that they haven't been recruited and fire motor neurons in ways that are inefficient and can often lead to soreness, you might just be dealing with this for a while and and taking too many breaks and waiting to not be sore might mean not training very often. But if you're overtraining and you're sore from that, then taking a break and not working out every day would be really smart. So I would say that just in general, it's never a good idea to work out or train every day. But if you're so new to this that like you're getting wrecked every session no matter what, uh, I would expect that to generally fade with time. Uh, All right, you guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you have one minute and you would like to do me a favor and help the podcast grow and reach more people so they can live a happy and healthy life, 
go down to the show notes, click the review tabs for either iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening, and leave me a five-star rating and review. That is the absolute best thing you could do to help the show grow. It is tremendously appreciated, and you can also help support the show by shopping through our wonderful sponsors, Seed, who makes the best probiotic supplement on the market. You can check out using the code Danny15 to save 15% on your first month of the best symbiotic probiotic product on the market. Legion, who makes the best protein, pre-workout, and creatine. You can check out using the promo code Danny to save there. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you on the next one.